everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Bashu. If you're out there working in an emergency department today, there are so many factors impeding our practice and so many stress points that I wanted to cover just a few of them today as updates. That's infectious diseases, drug shortages, new legislation, just a bunch of updates that have occurred for us practicing in the emergency department within the last month. So this episode is lovingly titled, Where Are We With? Let's start with our old friend, COVID-19. First, some of us will be happy to hear that the U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary has extended the public health emergency, which then just allows funding for all of the numerous services that began tracking the disease and providing medications and funding research all through the pandemic. Second, cases are on the rise. In case you didn't notice, wherever it is you're living, most of the major metropolitan areas in the U.S. have registered a rise in cases due to Omicron, specifically the Omicron subvariant BA5, which currently makes up the majority of cases here in the U.S. What we have been seeing in the emergency department and no doubt what many urgent care centers and primary care practices have also been experiencing is that many people are contracting covid even those who previously never had it. If you've been vaccinated and even if you've been boosted, you're still susceptible, unfortunately, to this subvariant BA5 of Omicron. It's managed to bypass most of the immunity that is provided by the vaccines and by the boosters when it comes to mild symptomatic disease. What does that mean? That means we're not seeing as many people being hospitalized as we did with previous waves, but we are seeing many people test positive and have milder illnesses. We are also seeing many people who previously had infection with other variants now become reinfected, so natural immunity isn't as effective against the latest of the subvariants of Omicron. And because of that and the increasing rise in cases, a couple of states have actually brought back masking rules, so California is reinstating indoor masking for students, and New York Department of Health is recommending indoor and even outdoor masking in areas of congestion where there are a lot of people around. So unfortunately, this is familiar territory for most of us. Thankfully, hospitals are not being overwhelmed with COVID cases yet. There is an increase in the number of hospitalizations across the country, but it hasn't been anywhere near as dramatic as it has with the prior waves of infection. Some of that, hopefully, is due to the fact that we have many medications at our disposal for treating COVID nowadays. So regardless of the vaccination status, people who are high risk now have options for treatment. The CDC still recommends two medications as first-line therapy. One of them is oral Paxlovid, the five-day course of pills. This, of course, has to be started within the first five days of illness. The other is remdesivir, or Vecluri, as it's called by its trade name, which is an injectable three-day course of an intravenous antiviral medication. It's not commonly available because you've got to get it three days in a row. For use outside the hospital, it has to be given within the first seven days of illness. There are also two other therapies that are recommended as the second line of treatment. One is the last and only monoclonal antibody available for treatment called bebtilovimab. 
You may recall we've talked about monoclonal antibodies before, but none of them are effective against Omicron except for this last remaining one for treatment, and it also has to be given within the first seven days of illness. It is a one-time dose of an intravenous medication. And then lastly, molnupiravir, or Legevrio, as it's called by its trade name, is another oral antiviral therapy that's available as a five-day course of pills that has to be started within the first five days of illness. All of these medications have either emergency authorization or, in some cases, FDA approval to treat COVID-19 in patients who are high risk. Some of them are approved in adults and children 12 years and older. And as we see more and more people contracting the illness, especially those who are at high risk and have been stuck in their homes for the last two years and now are finally getting exposed, it's important to know the indications for each of these. Additionally, not everything is available in whatever area you may be practicing in. So the Department of Health and Human Services maintains a COVID therapeutics website where you can look up a specific medication in your area and see which pharmacies still have it available. A couple of new developments in the last month, the federal government approved prescribing by pharmacists for COVID-19 specifically. So if the pharmacist knows the patient's renal function and hepatic function and knows their list of medications and their medical diseases, then the pharmacist is able to determine if the patient is a candidate for one of these COVID-19 therapies and prescribe it all at the same time from the pharmacy without the patient having to go and find a physician or a provider of some sort. That's brand new within the last month. Also within the last month, the FDA provided emergency use authorization to Novavax, a new vaccine, in addition to all of the currently available vaccines. Novavax is not an mRNA vaccine. It is more of a traditional vaccine that contains the COVID spike protein. It was found to be 90% efficacious in preventing cases of COVID, but not specifically tested against Omicron. The current authorization is for its use in people who are completely unvaccinated. They've received no doses of any vaccine. There is discussion about the manufacturer of Novavax applying for authorization for it to be used as a booster if people are interested in mixing and matching their vaccines, but that's not currently the approval. So right now, only people who are completely unvaccinated can receive it. Next, we're talking about monkeypox. If you're a listener of the podcast regularly, back in May, we discussed some of the background about the disease. And if you go to foamed.ebmedicine.net, you'll find a post there on the diagnosis and treatment for monkeypox. But in case you haven't been paying attention, it is growing very rapidly here in the United States. We are up to over 2,000 cases, most of which are located in a cluster of states where most of the people live. So New York, California, Florida, there are an increasing number now in Illinois and Georgia, and really almost every state in the United States has had at least one case. Quoting exact numbers is really mostly academic at this point because the case counts change daily. 
The CDC tracker tracks national cases as well as global cases. And you can see that the United States is slowly moving up the chain as the number of cases increase. We are now the second on the list for most number of cases for a non-endemic country for monkeypox cases. But regardless, what does that mean for us here in the emergency department? That means a few things. First, it means that the likelihood of encountering a case wherever it is you're working is increasing rapidly, and it is very important to understand how to diagnose and also how to treat the infection. Diagnosis is based on a characteristic rash, and if you go to the FOMED post at ebmedicine.net, you'll see a description of the rash and how it progresses. I don't really want to get into that here today. There is lots of information out there, and there's an excellent article that just came out in Science Direct from a group of emergency physicians in California detailing the progression of the disease in some of the cases they're seeing out there. I'll put that link in the show notes. In the meantime, it's important to know that vaccination is now being encouraged for anyone who has been exposed and in some areas is being given to those who are at risk. Currently, those who are at risk still encompass men who have sex with other men, and you can find at local departments of health ways to register to get the vaccine. It's not available to patients directly to register and get the vaccine in most areas, but in some, like New York, for example, you can actually go online and fill out a form, and if you're noted to be at high risk, then you can sign up to go and receive the vaccine. As far as healthcare workers are concerned, there is currently no recommendation to vaccinate people in mass just because you work in healthcare. If you specifically work in a lab where you're testing specimens, or if you work for a department of public health and you are the person responsible for going out and testing people, then yes, there are recommendations for vaccination. There's only two vaccines available. One is ACAM 2000, which is a live vaccinia virus. It's a single dose, and people are considered vaccinated about 28 days after having received it. It is the vaccine that was developed for smallpox and causes a small lesion at the site of the vaccination, and that lesion contains live virus. So you got to keep it covered because you can transmit the virus. The other one, Gineos, J-Y-N-N-E-O-S, is also a live virus, but it's non-replicating. It's a two-dose vaccine. It's given four weeks apart, and patients are considered fully vaccinated two weeks after the second dose. Both of these are available at the disposal of the CDC and your local departments of health. So in emergency medicine and even in some urgent cares, if you have someone suspected of having monkeypox, step one is alerting your local department of health to begin the process of screening and contact tracing and testing and determining if the patient meets criteria for treatment. When it comes to treatment, the CDC has multiple medications at their disposal for someone who is infected and meets their criteria. These medications have not been studied specifically for monkeypox. Most of them are medications that come out of the smallpox literature or other orthopox virus treatments like cowpox, for example. So it's important to know that notification of your local Department of Health is step one. They will help guide testing and then contact tracing and vaccination of anyone who might have been exposed. 
Within the last month, testing capability has changed. It is no longer just the CDC lab that is capable of testing for monkeypox. Multiple commercial laboratories are also coming on board with monkeypox tests available, and some even have them available to physicians to order directly within the order catalog. So testing capability is increasing. It's still not available everywhere, and certainly hospitals locally are not carrying these tests yet. But the large commercial labs do have them available with a relatively quick turnaround, according to their advertising. As of the time of this recording, there are currently five commercial labs that offer that monkeypox test. If you're in a location where you're likely to encounter someone who might have monkeypox, the personal protective equipment requirement is gloves and a gown and a facial covering and a mask. And this is all to prevent any contact with fluid from the actual vesicles in the rash. So it's important not to get it on your own clothing. If you do get it on your clothing, you're supposed to remove it and immediately wash it. So the virus can be transmitted inside the fluid from these vesicles and contact with materials or clothing uh, or bedding that gets saturated in this fluid also allows it to be transmitted that way. That's the primary method of transmission. It isn't known to be airborne, but large droplets are thought to transmit the disease as well, which is why there's a recommendation for wearing an N95 mask when you're encountering a patient. Next up is medication shortages, which is something that we're very accustomed to in the emergency department and really in healthcare in general now in the U.S. Over the last three years, we've experienced an extraordinary number of medication shortages from really basic things like normal saline, IV fluids, injectable epinephrine, albuterol inhalers, all the way up to now the latest, the benzodiazepine shortage. So if you're looking for Ativan or diazepam or some of the more commonly used benzodiazepines, you may notice that they're not available in your emergency department or at your hospital pharmacy. The American Society of Health System Pharmacists has a great website detailing which medications are in short supply across the United States and why. Most of these are related to manufacturing delays. COVID plays a huge role in these as well because companies shut down manufacturing as local rules and policies go into effect for quarantine and for COVID outbreaks, especially if the medication is coming from China. And so we have problems getting medications and we have problems maintaining supplies of medications that in the past we haven't had to deal with. And now we can add benzodiazepines to that list. Again, if you're looking for a rapid reference for a conversion for whatever benzodiazepine you might have available, there is a rapid reference note at foamed.ebmedicine.net for benzodiazepine equivalents, which you might find helpful. The 988 National Suicide and Crisis Hotline is now live as of this month. That is a three-digit number meant to be as memorable as 911, and it is intended for people to call when they're having any kind of mental health crisis. 
you may recall that there is a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number, 1-800-273-8255, will actually stay active, but will route calls to the new 988 hotline. When someone calls that number, they are connected to a network of 200 local crisis call centers with trained counselors available 24-7. If the local call center is not available, then a backup center is connected to the person calling, and you can even text the number and someone will call you back and try and connect you to one of these centers and the qualified person on the other end of the line to hopefully get you the help that you need. So that's a wonderful service that is now live all across the U.S. And lastly, not necessarily directly related to emergency medicine, but still very relevant to our practice, there is a shortage of baby formula all across the U.S., and there have been cases of babies arriving at hospitals and urgent care centers and primary care clinics with significant electrolyte abnormalities from parents trying to stretch baby formula, diluting it with water, or finding alternative means to feed their babies. Thankfully, the FDA commissioner announced this week that shortage is hopefully going to come to a stop soon. The production is now exceeding the amount that's being used in the United States, and hopefully supplies will start filling up shelves at local stores very soon. It's not immediate. It's going to take some time, but it's still welcome news that hopefully this particular shortage is going to come to an end very soon. And that's the end of the Where Are We With podcast update episode. I hope you found it helpful. Until next time, I'm Sam Eshoo. Be safe, everyone.